0: The Boston Podcast Network is proud to present the Academy of Special Needs Planners, the podcast. Now, here's your host, Kevin Urbach. Welcome to the Academy of Special Needs Planners podcast. My name is Kevin Urbach. I am the National Director of the Academy of Special Needs Planners. And today, my very special guest is David Lillisand. David Lillisand is an expert in social security law having done this work um, beginning in 1974, um, oddly enough when the first year SSI cases were being heard um, up to the present including his work with special needs planning that began in 1989. David has probably submitted somewhere in the range of 2,500 fee authorizations for his fees. And that is important because today's topic is going to cover a new situation that many special needs planning attorneys find themselves in, and that is there is a new rule from the Social Security Administration that may impact how special needs planning attorneys get paid. And in general, as I understand it, the new POMS would require or may require a fee authorization to the Social Security Administration on the drafting of a special needs trust Possibly, if you amend a special needs trust, especially in response to a SSA denial, it could be that there's a fee authorization if you merely meet with a person and discuss SSI eligibility and maybe later create a special needs trust. But where this all came from is from a new rule. So today I thought I'd bring in David Lillisand who might be able to shed some light on this new rule and he and I are going to have a little bit of a discussion. So, David, welcome. Thank you very much, Kevin, this is a pleasure. All right, so before we get started, I know a lot of people probably are unfamiliar with the Social Security Administration's fee authorization process. Is there a 10,000-foot view you could kind of give us of what it means to have to submit your fees to approval by the Social Security Administration?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Um, originally, in the Social Security Act in 1935, Congress didn't care if attorneys were helping. And uh, then over the years, in the first 30 years, uh, they became uh, more involved directing the Social Security Administration to start reining in attorneys that were charging what Congress felt were inappropriate high fees. Um, and so particularly in the 1960s, um, they directed Social Security to start approval, uh, requiring approval of a fee before an attorney may charge it. Um, in the 1980s, they said, well, we'll let you put the proposed fee into your trust account um, and then uh, you know, submit later so we still can get paid in advance. We just have to put it in our attorney's client trust account first. And then get the fee authorization from Social Security later if we're in fact underneath the rules for, um, needing to have, uh, Social Security fee approval. And, um, basically this kind of sat in terms of, it was clear, uh, let's, let's make the distinction. Daniel Byrne was the one that started using this term direct services for clients vis-a-vis Social Security versus collateral services. Direct services would be what I started doing in 1974 and continue to this day where persons are denied social security benefits for some reason, usually medical, and we take an appeal. That's direct. I'm directly representing the client. I have to file essentially a notice of appearance, which they call an appointment of representative signed by the client. And everything I do is regulated. Um, and actually, uh, probably had to get m- above 4,000 uh, fee authorizations all uh, altogether because I still have to get fee authorizations uh, today for representing clients in that kind of direct service. Uh, winning a disability case, the typical fee is 25% of the past two benefits is successful and it's contingent on winning, so it's zero if I lose. Um, the new area is what uh, Mary Byrne now calls collateral services that is what a lot of special needs planners do in terms of uh, a client comes in they're not eligible because they have too much money for ssi and so the rules for uh, disability payments to persons that are not qualified for regular disability that is based on the taxes they've paid which we also call social security disability insurance are different for persons that have not had the opportunity or haven't worked recently enough so that they qualify for that and then they get supplemental security income SSI. So it's really important to understand from the very get-go that a lot of special needs planning that may be done to acquire Medicaid, uh, anything else for like public housing benefits or Nonprofit services where you have to have low income. Anything that's done other than to acquire SSI is not covered by this, uh, uh, this statute that Congress passed in the 1960s and amended. And, uh, in the rules that started in 2004, where Social Security started laying out what is sort of the collateral services area that's covered. But it was never clear that well, did that include trusts or not? And so the POMS that was issued in July of two thousand four uh, now has a new brother, and that brother is uh, one that says uh, in three examples that trusts may trust drafting may or may not be covered. So that's how we kind of got to where we are right now, and it's okay. that latter palm that's the
0: issue. Okay, so let me take a step back and kind of go over some of those issues you described. So. Mm-hmm. It sounds like with direct service, it's very clear that the Social Security Administration has the authority to tell an attorney how much they can be paid or how much they can be paid. Correct.
1: Yeah. And that's been litigated all the way to the Supreme Court. And people argued that, you know, clients have the right to contract with whomever they wanted at whatever rate. All those kinds of major constitutional issues and whether the statute really gives the authority to Social Security to do this. Uh, That's all been litigated already.
0: Okay. And so now that we have the fact that um, the SSA can regulate fees, and it sounds like for direct services, especially like for applying for SSDI or SSI, it's very clear that an attorney who does that work must comply with this fee authorization, correct?
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So then as I understand it, the um, issue that has come up is that on uh, June 25th of this year, 2019, the SSA issued an update to their POMs that included some trust work, is that correct?
1: Yeah, what they did is they provided um, examples to give effect to their July 2004 uh, older POMs.
0: Okay, and so then, Up until this POMS was issued in June 25, 2019, would you have considered the mere drafting of a special needs trust to be services that required SSA fee authorization?
1: Yes, absolutely, and I wrote a paper to that effect. Um, The good news was Social Security wasn't enforcing it, Um, but I said that the um, 2004 POMS pretty clearly laid it out that we, you know, providing these types of collateral services were contemplated in and covered by this 2004 POMS. Um, but, it, you know, uh, a couple of other commentators, I'm, I'm, I'm not the social security commissioner and I'm not the, the U.S. Congress and um, have no specific authority. I was just reading what they wrote and said, hey, I think this applies to us. But other people wrote, um, uh, papers and said, well, I don't think so. And we talked to some social security people and some of the social security regional uh, attorney's offices said, yeah, we don't think so either. Whereas some others said, we're not going to tell you whether we think so or not,
0: but you know, <laughs> that sounds difficult. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, I think in the mo- the only really clear issue is it was unclear at that point.
1: Yeah, there was a difference of opinion. I think that was clearly the case. Okay. Um, That the Dallas Regional Office of Social Security, uh, their attorneys felt strongly that they didn't want to be involved and they weren't required to be involved. And that was as late as 2016 and 2017, Mm -hmm. um, when this previous POMS was sitting there since 2004. But that was their position. But that was not universal, And we often have issues where um, the chief regional chief counsel uh, around the country, there are 10 of them in the regional offices, will have substantial disagreement, just like U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeal do. But then once the U.S. Supreme Court settles the Circuit Court of Appeal issue, that's, you know, the disagreement ends. And that's sort of what I think has happened here with, the national office saying, well, we don't care what Dallas's opinion was. This is how we see it.
0: So with the, we, we've been discussing the POMs and there may be some people in the audience who may not know what the POMs are. It just occurred to me. Um, is there like a really brief description you can provide of what, what, what do we mean by the Social Security Administration's palms?
1: Well, uh, one of my clients came to me and said, Mr. David, they say I can't get benefits because there's something wrong with my palms." And he was holding up his hand, p o p a l m s, And we're talking about POMS as in P-O-M-S, which is an abbreviation for Program Operations Manual System. So what it is is a 53,000-page document available to all of us on the Internet um, that describes how staff are supposed to apply the statute uh, and the federal regulations dealing with Social Security uh, to individual cases and tells them exactly which forms to use, how to enter information on the computer, and how to interpret factual situations of whether or not a certain thing is allowed or prohibited or what's required to get information, et cetera. Um, and that program operations manual used to be in paper format, and it took like a, a whole room to fill it up to uh, to have the thing and it required people putting in advance sheets and the kind of things we used to do as lawyers with court decisions. Now, there is no paper POMs anywhere. It's uh, The POMs are only located online and they're digital only. But the good news is they're available to us and if they amend the POMs, you know, uh, today, by tonight, it'll be posted so we'll have the absolute latest update.
0: Okay, so... The the palms are not really law, but they're basically law for anyone who practices in this area. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yes. And, you know, we've had some court decisions. Uh, you wrote an excellent paper on this uh, yourself, Kevin, that talked about, um, you know, when are the palms to be regarded as some kind of authority in a court case? They are definitely not the same as obviously a statute, the Social Security Act, Um They're not even as high as Social Security rulings, which is a national pronouncement from Social Security on a particular issue. Um, Federal regulations are higher in statute than POMS. And if there's a conflict between the statute and the regs and a particular POMS, the POMS is ineffective or limited by what that regulation says. The difference is that federal regulations are actually part of the Administrative Procedure Act. Social Security publishes them in advance, asks for comments, then does a final publication dealing with and describing each of the comments. Uh, The POMs just come out of nowhere, just like we were blitzed on June 25 without any knowledge this was was in the works.
0: So when you talk about a statutory basis for the fee authorization, I understand that that's set forth in 42 U.S.C. section 406. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, 406 and the two subparts that are important are A1, subparagraph A, subparagraph number one, and A5, uh, subparagraph five.
0: So I believe um, when we're talking about this rule, many attorneys probably are completely unfamiliar with what, what Social Security does, but they could probably presume that it's not to benefit the attorney in any way, shape, or form. So they may be concerned about getting their fees approved by the Social Security Administration and may just decide, I'm not going to follow that rule. I don't think it's necessary. What happens to those attorneys who are required to file for fee authorization and they refuse to comply?
1: Well, the danger here is that uh, if you take the ostrich view and just stick your head in the sand and I'm just gonna charge my clients, Uh, subsection five of what we just quoted 42 USC section 406 a says, any person who knowingly charges or collects directly or indirectly any fee that's not approved by social security, um, and prescribed by the commissioner of social security shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor and upon conviction, uh, shall be punished, um, by imprisonment up to one year. And they did pursue in the 1960s, uh, a couple of people, one was a tax preparer, one was a uh, an attorney uh, that was representing families on retainer, and also as part of that, didn't um, get a specific fee authorization for that portion of what he was doing, because he wasn't charging by the topic or by the event. He, he was just helping people if they had a traffic ticket or if they had a lease to read or, in this case, if they had some uh, applications for Social Security that was denied. Um, so it, it, the the penalty here is what we're worried about. Um, and this is a penalty. So failure to file a fee petition does not affect the client whatsoever directly. I mean, if the attorney is charging $100,000 to do a job that's worth 5000 yeah, there's going to be a problem. That's even bar ethics rules. But the problem here is that Uh, Social Security is not going after the client, they're going after the person who knowingly charges uh, and collects directly or indirect a fee that's not approved.
0: And just so I heard that correctly, if you're found guilty or in violation of this section, you could go to jail for each time it happens. So if you did it for 10 clients, you could potentially go to jail for 10 years?
1: Yeah, I'm not a criminal at all criminal lawyer um so i don't know you know there may be some defenses to whether it's a you know a successive series of acts i think your your statement is correct but um you know hey clever federal criminal defense lawyers could come up with something different based on what the statute uh, says
0: i guess for us one year or 10 i mean n- nobody wants to go to jail so
1: well yeah and once you go to jail for doing this um you know the way that social security has enforced this is they get a uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office has a criminal division and a civil division. You get the criminal division to get a federal indictment. The U.S. Marshals come to your office or your house and arrest you. Uh, you bond out on bail, and then you get set for trial, and you got to go through a federal criminal trial. And even if you win, you're losing, in my view. I, you, know, what, you know, my main goal here is to avoid doing anything that's going to aggravate them to the point where. They're going to come after me. And that's why I, you know, think it's really important that we try to avoid avoid criminal intent, but we also act like lawyers and try to determine um, using these guidelines Social Security gave us, whether a particular activity of ours is covered or not covered. And there are clearly sometimes when we prepare special needs trusts that are not covered uh, by this rule and are not uh, the rule doesn't apply to what we've done. We don't need the authorization. The difficulty is knowing when you're covered and when you're not covered. And then the decision that each attorney is going to make is, uh, am I feeling lucky? You know, how much of a risk am I willing to take? I think sticking your head in the fan and saying, I'm just not going to pay attention to this is a really high risk because you put your law license, your freedom, everything on the line. It's kind of like not worth it just to avoid filing a fee petition. You know, we all file fee petitions every day. If you do guardianship work, if you do probate, if you do represent clients on an hourly basis, we're constantly preparing fee petitions. And we have the computer hardware to capture the time, describe the services, and do what's required to get the fee authorization.
0: Okay. Well, why don't we take a look? Because what happened is... We're all going about our lives, and I believe um, Attorney Avram Sachs sent everybody out a notice that the SSA had issued a revised or updated palms, and that palms is under the titled GN 03920007 dot and. What's really interesting about that is if you read all the way up until the examples, you would think pretty clearly that drafting or setting up a trust would not be the type of service that would require a fee authorization. But then you get to the examples in subsection capital D. Is is that pretty much uh, an accurate summary? I can't remember when Avi sent out his notice to us, but um, I think I it was the day after, actually. And and thank you to Avi Sachs for doing that
1: because, I mean, I might be unaware till for this day. You know, usually I check there on the palms that's online. There's this, um, one of the things you can click through is tell me all the things that are new, and uh, you know, so I don't look at it every day. But Avi called it to our attention and said, this is something we need to look at more carefully. And he was absolutely correct on that. <laughs> so, but D and the examples yeah. in, in D are, you know, key to read. I really think that people need to look at the prior palms, too, to see what, you know, how it's covered and what's not. That's in the same area, GN point double oh five zero zero five um because that's where they social security lays out its broadest net saying that you're covered uh, under these attorney fee um, compliance rules even if social security never recognized you as being the client's official attorney that the attorney never dealt directly with or even contacted social security and the fee to, is to be charged even from a third party. Um, and it results in Social Security having to review the special needs trust, which we know is exactly what happens in practice. So you read that and then you kind of go to, well, what are the examples in D1, 2, and 3? The, out of the seven examples, three deal with the drafting of trusts
0: and these are the new examples these are what were, these are what was is, was issued on that June 25th date
1: exactly
0: exactly and i've spent quite a bit of time trying to decipher what services social security is trying to tell us attorneys what we when we need to submit a fee authorization and despite my best efforts i have still been unable to create a clear checklist or guideline as to what services I'm providing that I need to go to Social Security and ask for my fees to be approved. Do you have a very clear example of when we are required to do this and not required to do this?
1: Yeah, a couple of them. Uh, we'll start with the easy ones. Um, for um, attorneys who do a lot of medicaid planning and that includes acquiring medicaid eligibility to pay for nursing home care these people are in, a, in the vast majority of time in my experience well above the income level for ssi the only benefit they're looking for is nursing home coverage they're never going to be eligible for ssi these rules only cover ssi monthly checks not medicaid eligibility. Um, so Clearly, you know, making somebody eligible for HUD public housing, uh, for food stamps, for um, uh, any other kind of service, including Medicaid, are not covered by this rule. It's only if you're triggering either the acquiring SSI benefits uh, or continuing SSI benefits. So right off the top, we take off all of those issues, including... Social Security Disability Insurance, Title II Benefits. Uh, So both, an individual has to be disabled both to collect Title II SSDI and the medical criteria are the same for SSI disability. Um, But it's only the SSI portion, which is a welfare program that's covered by these rules.
0: Okay, so jumping ahead then, um, let's assume that uh, the attorney wants to submit the fee, the fee authorization or their fees for authorization by the SSA, how mm-hmm. would an attorney who does special needs planning do that? Is that a very complicated process or is there a um, set procedure for how to do that?
1: Well, the uh, Social Security Administration has had a set procedure in place since
0: 1974. So they're
1: used to dealing with this. They approved about 2,641 fee authorizations per day. This is something they do all the time. Um, So this is gonna be easy for them. It's just gonna be something new for us. Um, When we were making that distinction between direct services, that is I'm representing the client on appeal and uh, collateral services where I'm preparing a trust that makes the client eligible for SSI or continuing eligibility for SSI. Um, when we're dealing with the latter, which is drafting trust primarily, we're going to be using the fee petition process. Social security has two ways to get our fees approved. One is the client's not on benefits. So I agree to represent them. When I win, I get a portion of that retroactive award that social security should have been paying to the client with, uh, the, the special needs trust drafting, I will be filing fee petitions where... Um, it's pretty much exactly what people are used to doing in, in other state court cases. Um, the fee petition is a form that social security has. Uh, the number is SSA social Security administration form one five six Oh, 1560. Um, it's a very short two page form. That's really a summary of the amount of the fee you're asking for. Um, and It has to be signed by you and by your client both. So it's a kind of a joint petition filed by the attorney and the client to get the fee approved. Uh, And then there are attachments to it. um, And the attachment would be what your computer program will generate out as a date of when you first started, a description of the services and the amount of time uh, for each particular date you worked on this case. Uh, You can still charge a flat fee as most of us, I think, do when we prepare a special needs trust. But bear in mind that your success of getting the fee approved is going to be judged on uh, how much time you put into the case hour by hour. So it's going to be an issue um, to, to requiring you to start keeping time records from the first phone call when you have a new client. Um, and then that's submitted to Social Security. The process of submitting the fee petition is super easy. That's not the big problem for us. Um, even holding the the client's prepaid um, flat fee of $5,000 for preparation of the special needs trust in our trust account. We're used to holding client funds in trust account. That's not a problem. The problem is that we will not be speaking to the person who authorizes our fee. We will file the fee at the local social security office the fee petition, but then the fee petition gets sent to one of six national service centers, program service centers (PSCs) that Social Security has, to send out checks and approve fees. And uh, where your your uh, fee petition will go will depend not on where you live or where even where the client lives now. It depends on the first three digits and last two digits of the client's Social Security number. So it breaks up the workload across the United States. Um, in my scenario, I live in the Tampa Bay area. If I needed an attorney and represented me who was filing a fee petition, they would file it at our local Tampa social security office. The social security office worker cannot comment on, do anything with regard to that fee petition at all. They simply send it on to whichever of the six different program office service center offices that social security has to to review the fee petition and make a decision on it and we're not going to know where it's going most of the time there is a formula we can figure it out i've got that information but um at each of these six program service centers social security has what they call fee authorizers those are full-time paid staff who deal with fee petitions um, and then there's a set of criteria that's in the regulations and in the POMs that describe what those uh, fee authorizers are supposed to use as a standard for determining whether your fee of $5,000 is appropriate or not. And then so the big problem is two things. One, a huge backlog and delay. Um, in some parts of California, I understand that it's ta- the Social Security um, is working on 2017, 2017 fee petitions. So they're not even into the 2018 ones filed, much less any in 2019. So it's a huge backlog. So you're going to wait years potentially to get your fee approved. The second big problem is they can be incredibly stingy. Um, and uh, so you may ask for 5,000, but they think, Well, you know, you'd only put in 8 hours in this case, maybe at $100 an hour. We'll give you $800. Hmm. And there is no federal court right of action to challenge Social Security's determination of your fee. And so the third huge big problem with this is that uh, there is no kind of uniform standard across the country. And there's no predictability. You could submit two fee petitions on the same day for two different cases for the same amount of money for doing exactly the same number of hours. And one may approve your 5000 fee and the other may cut it to 2500 or $800. Um, and you're kind of stuck with what they do. There is an internal Social Security fee review process. I just gave up using that. It, it, it just I never won. Uh, a case and that was in 20 years Um, so you know getting a good fee petition describes what you've done and uh, also submitting a little mini brief that uses the standards that they're going to be using to determine whether your fee should be approved Uh, you really got to do the upfront work to try to get your full fee and so those three things are the big issues I see and uh what we're facing it's not filling out the form to have it sent to social security
0: and i i heard one other thing practically speaking that oftentimes you'll submit your fee authorization request and then ssa will lose your documents
1: like they do with every document um so whenever something is important like a jurisdictional thing i need to file a request for reconsideration within 65 days or i got to file a request for hearing um then I submit those certified return requests petitions, I will do the same thing. Uh when they lose it, um, then everything that I have is already uh scanned into digital form. And so I don't have to resubmit paperwork. I just get them a copy of what I sent in with the cover letter that I sent in with it and the certified return receipt showing that it was signed by, you know, Mary Smith at the local Social Security Office. Um, so that's not a huge problem to deal with, it's a problem that they do lose it. Um, but the, the the POMS direct the local claims representatives, those are the frontline people at the local office to just not do anything, but just forward this thing on to the right program service center. And the problem is we don't know what happens when it gets there. And uh, so then it requires that we start submitting requests for updates of information um, so okay. we may be able to contact the right program service center that has the our fee petition and a particular client um, or clients and we might be dealing with clients that are being approved in each one of the six uh, program service centers at the same time we're pending from all six centers um, so it's going to be a pain in the neck to deal with deal with this
0: And as I understand, um, especially having handled a handful of uh, administrative law judge hearings where the SSA denied a special needs trust wrongfully, and we appealed and I had to appeal all the way to the ALJ, which took about two years to get a hearing date and an opinion, Um, oftentimes when I'm talking to the SSA or ALJ, they have no idea what a special needs trust is. Um, oftentimes with the ALJ, I'll walk in and they'll say, so this is a trust case. I think I remember taking trust in estates 45 years ago in law school, and that was the only experience they have with trust. So I just am concerned that if an SSA official is reviewing fees for establishment of a trust, that they really don't understand what they're going to come up with.
1: No, and they're required to have the actual trust document at hand to see what your product is, but they don't know how much time went into that product or not uh, any time. I mean, I am famous for um, the proposition that we should use a one-page special needs trust, which I do, uh, simply because I produce a smaller target. But I know that when it comes time to uh, review whether I should get paid $5,000 uh or more for doing a special needs trust, they're gonna look at it and say, it's one page document. How many minutes did it take you to do this? That's not the point. It took me 30 years to get to this point to be successful a hundred percent of the time when my trusts are sent in and reviewed by Social Security. I never ever have a problem with approval. Um and you know so that's why I've become less and less creative with lots of examples and blowing this document up document up to be 60, 70 pages long. Um, you know, maybe now, I don't know, maybe we should rethink that. Except how do I put the client at risk? I know that my one-page trust is going to get approved 100 times out of 100 submissions without fail. If I do a 60-page document and I put in all these examples, case I'm now working on for another attorney, the local social security claims rep said, I don't think the trust should pay for hair salons for the, for the beneficiary, so I'm denying the trust. Where'd that come from? It's not in the law. I don't give any examples about what we pay, so that can't happen in my trust. Mm-hmm. So now I've got a conflict. If I just am working hard to avoid having my fee cut by Social Security, am I really working in the client's best interest? I don't think so. Um, even though probably going to result in me getting my fee slashed, over and over and over again um, and back in the 70s and 80s particularly in the late 80s and 90s um, you were just mentioning Kevin that you know you would take a case to an ALJ hearing well all of our even if we were on a contingent fee basis we had to submit a fee petition that say we should get the full contingent fee of 25 percent we had one judge that never ever in his entire history of being a judge Ever approved a fee greater than a thousand dollars. And in one of my cases, I won over $80,000 for the client in past two awards. And he said, I'm just cutting your fee for the same reason I always cut it. This is simple work. It shouldn't have been that difficult. <laughs> I reopened four prior applications. Um, so there's just no, there's no uh, kind of ethos that, you know, we should recognize how hard attorneys work, how much time goes into something, Um, you know, uh, let's just look at the product and say, hey, you know, they ain't worth that much. It was simple. Do it.
0: Okay. So what I think we should do right now is um, we'll probably end this podcast, but we're going to do a second podcast on this topic because it is such a big issue, especially for people with disabilities, because... I have already heard many, not many, but several attorneys who have started saying they will no longer do special needs trust work just because of this new POMS. There are already, in my opinion, far fewer attorneys needed to do this type of work um, for people with disabilities now. And if we start losing more people, it's going to be harder and harder for people with disabilities to obtain legal representation at a time when they, it's critical that they have it because the issues around countable resources and ongoing eligibility for SSI and Medicaid would require, I think, to have an attorney assisting the people you know, when they're in this situation. And I think this rule harms them. Um, of course, probably sounding a little self-serving as an attorney saying that, but... Again, I really believe that um, when the clients come in, they have no idea how to handle this situation. So in our next podcast, I think we're going to talk about a couple of exceptions to the fee authorization rule and why they may not be as beneficial as they sound. um, And also go into a little more detail on when does an attorney an attorney service be subject to the fee authorization procedure in more specific terms, talking about third-party SNTs, pooled SNTs, um, first-party D4A SNTs, and a lot of these other services. So David, I want to thank you for your time on this podcast and you are joining me for the next one um, where we'll be discussing these additional issues. So any last comments on what we've talked about so far?
1: I think it's critically important that people become aware of what they can do and what they
0: cannot do, and then they make their own decisions about what their future practice is going to be. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. So if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Uh, We'd like to be able to reach as many people as possible with these educational uh, podcasts. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Or if you'd like to share the podcast, you can find it at pod617.com. Or you can look at my website, which is herblaw.com, U-R-B-L-A-W.com.